I'm Michael Osterlink here. I'm speaking with Matthew Fay. He is Defense Policy Analyst for the Niskanen Center. Welcome back, Matt. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. It's been a while. Uh, two things that are on your plate, uh, among many. One is acquisition reform and related topic, innovation and war fighting. We know that uh, Chairman Thornberry has been big on acquisition reform. Mm-hmm. Why don't we start there? What are some of your ideas in terms of that area of policy? Well, uh like you said, Congressman Thornberry has been uh, taking, he's had an acquisition reform agenda going for a few years. He's been trying to take an incremental approach to it. Um, he, his latest is called the Acquisitions Agility Act. Um, it's going to be part of, I believe, the NDAA this year. And one of the ideas is that we're moving too slow on um, uh, acquiring weapons, falling behind on technology. Costs tend to balloon down the road, these things. So, He's trying to address these in a variety of ways, but they tend to focus on the managerial and technical aspects of uh, acquisition. These are important. I don't want to, uh, to downplay them at all. Um, that We have seen some improvement recently uh, in, in those areas. Uh, Frank Kendall, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition, has uh, instituted initiatives like the Better Buying, uh, Better Buying Power Series, that have improved some of these things. We have seen cost and uh, cost growth and schedule slippage contained a little bit. But I think one of the bigger problems we see, and this is not as often discussed in uh, acquisition reform, the kind of larger acquisition reform debate, is the political aspects of it. And a lot of that starts with the politics of the Pentagon bureaucracy and the politics of the military services. So, um, co-author of mine, uh, Alex Kurse, uh, from he's a junior fellow at the Center for National Interest. He and I recently had a piece discussing this at Real Clear Defense, um, and they were it, what we talk about is the requirements process because that's really what starts the ball rolling. Some people look at it as preceding the acquisition uh, uh, process in in, uh, in general, but I think it's it's really tied up in it because that's where you're talking about what missions you need. Uh, any particular weapon system to complete and what technology it's going to need. And this goes to the political preferences of the military services, which are often for extraordinarily technologically advanced weapons. Now, these are not just technologically advanced now. They want state-of-the-art five years out, ten years out. Um, it's understandable. They, they want to be at the leading edge of technology, but sometimes these are not necessarily realistic things. The problem comes in is when there's nobody really there to push back on this. In theory, you should be able to have the civilian bureaucracy at the Department of Defense push back, but with the different um, uh, organizations and institutions we have for defining requirements, uh, JSIDS, the Joint Development Concept Organization, the uh, JROC especially, the Joint Requirements Oversight Council, these are the military services uh, run these organizations themselves. Um, James Locker, who was a uh, Senate Armed Services Committee staffer that helped shepherd Coldwater Nichols through, that helped uh, try to increase the jointness of the military services, said it's a rubber stamp in the JROC. And the reason is, is that it's only the military services involved. So if the Navy wants something that maybe isn't necessarily realistic, why is the Army going to say no to them if the Navy can come back when the Army wants something that's not necessarily realistic and then say no to them? So it essentially institutionalizes service log rolling. And when, when that happens, you tend to get these things, that these capabilities that they want that might be problematic in, in, uh, in producing uh, 
five, ten years down the road as you get into the production and into the development and production phases. And that's where we see a lot of the cost growth in acquisition and schedule slippage and whatnot. Ideally, the civilian bureaucracy should be able to come in and say, well, no, we're not doing that. But again, you have the military services united in opposition to that. There's only so much political power uh, you have. You have industry uh, and Congress involved, too. Industry can act as a lobby. Industry has one customer and one customer only. They don't tend to do very well when they tell that one customer no. So there's no incentive for them to say, well, we can't do this. We can't complete. We can't give you this technology because they're not going to tell their one customer that we can't give you what you want. So all of this works to the advantage of the services. Essentially being able to get technology that when it goes into, when, when time comes to actually put it into practice is, is either immature or not yet feasible. So you have to re-engineer things, you have to re-estimate things, and that's when we're going to see costs expand and schedules get pushed down the line. Okay, so a couple different thoughts and questions for you. Can, can you give, first of all, a few examples of weapon systems that have gone through this process, which taxpayers and military mm-hmm. analysts should be concerned about for the very reasons that you point out? Well, I mean, we've got the, the, the most famous ones we can think of are the most controversial right now. The, the, the Ford class has been multiple, um, uh, multiple delays, uh, still, still in development. The, um, uh, the F-35 is obviously the most famous example um, with its computer systems. We see it took, I believe there was a report in Defense News today that they invited, a, the Air Force invited a reporter out to see a test flight, and it took two hours to boot up the, uh, the, the, the computer systems on the uh, F-35. Uh, so these, uh, I mean, you've got millions of lines of code involved in, 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 the, in the stealth coding on, uh, on uh, the F-35. And, I mean, those are just a couple examples. This is going to go back to the LCS. Any number of, of uh, uh, systems where you just want to continually load the uh, advanced technology on and run into to all these problems. But then, if it doesn't turn out to work, to actually having to re-engineer it and... Um, uh, try to find something that actually does work in practice. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the 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 Ford class and the F thirty five are probably two of the most famous recent examples we can we can think of. But you could go through just about any system and 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 see this kind of thing happening. So it seems like um, the institutions, the services, and the politicians all line up on one side, mm-hmm. and a few thoughtful people and taxpayers <laughs> line up on the other side, as well as I'm sure the service members who who unfortunately will be unduly affected by mis- misallocation of resources sure. uh, when they have to go th- into battle. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of institutions can be then created that can be a counterbalance to kind of the full frontal force supporting uh, this kind of waste of resources? It's a good question, and there's no easy answer to it. I wish there was. Um, you know, if there was an easy answer to it, we probably would probably have it already. Probably not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true, or we wouldn't have implemented it already. Um, I tend to think that... Um, being able to break up the the kind of service cartel is what I know a few scholars have called it that uh, the managerial jointness we talk about you know since Goldwater Nichols was trying to encourage more jointness among the military services and in operations this makes sense uh, I want them cooperating on the battlefield uh, people like Harvey Sapolsky at MIT who's an adjunct fellow at the Niskanen Center has talked about it also cartelized the services as a political entity and in the in the management uh, aspect of defense um, breaking that up a little bit um, so the idea behind that would be that if you force them to to compete for resources 
that they have less incentive to work together to stymie political oversight. Um, would this be able to stop uh, Congress from buying, I don't know, more tanks, more Abrams tanks from, uh, uh, because they're produced in Lima, Ohio right now? Uh, probably not, but at least you can maybe start at the beginning of the process, acquisition process, and as we move further down the road, be able to, to at least start squeezing some of these things out. Some of the existing problems, we, in, in a lot of ways, might just have to, have to wait them out. Uh, that's a very unsatisfactory answer, I know, but it's, uh, it, that, that might just be the case with some things. And hopefully, as you move down in the future, you have, as you move down the road and in the future, as new acquisition programs come up, you have less of an ability of the services to log roll. And if they're competing for resources and if they're on their own and they start making some of these mistakes, they have more of a chance of actually losing out on budgetary resources and on prestige and on new programs. So they have less incentive than to, they have more incentive than mm -hmm. to be more realistic in what they're estimating and what they're asking for. How about Congress as a constitutional role of oversight? Um, <laughs> Put that in quotes. Yeah. Um, yeah. What they're supposed I, to be doing as opposed to what they do do. Well, like I said, I think I think they kind of, it's the same thing that with, with what, they're going to keep doing what they're doing. They're going to, I don't see Congress imposing uh, some kind of regulatory change on the services. Bureaucracies, they, they like to have their turf. They like to have... Their practices, the, the, the there's there's things about organizational cultures, um, that you know, can can especially when you're a politically powerful organization like the the military can can stymie that kind of uh, uh, the kind of oversight that might actually force changes on them. Um, plus, Congress benefits from the mm -hmm. system the way it is, so they have just as much incentive to th see things uh, uh, keep going, uh, keep the current political incentives in place. So I, I don't know if uh, changes that, that begin in Congress are going to make that much of a difference. But I believe that kind of the same logic with, with industry is almost leave them with no choice. Is if the services change their preferences based on their incentive, their, their self-interest, um, Congress, you, you'll never be able to get these things out completely. But uh, to be able to, if you can, if you can change the services' uh, uh, self-interest, what they do in their own self-interest, then you almost leave everybody else with no choice but to accept mm -hmm. it. Because like I said, it really begins with what they want, what their preferences are, and then moves on from there. And over the long term, that can have at least some effect. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things you're also working on is innovation, which mm -hmm. fits nicely with acquisition. Yeah. Um, talk, to, talk to us some, some, of, some of the ideas that you're, you're playing around with mm -hmm. and like you like to see implemented in the, server, in the branches. Yeah, um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm more kind of I, I, I'm more interested in what it takes to make interest, uh, uh, institutions and organizations change than okay. the particular form it takes. Okay. But uh, it, you are absolutely right that it is tied up in acquisition um, and, and for a lot of the same reasons. Organizations don't change easily. In fact, the, the purpose of a bureaucracy is to provide stability in producing a social output. Um, it is a societal, a, a public good. Um, so we don't want them to change easily. I think it was um, my dissertation advisor in a conver conversation uh, said that we, you know, if we look at if we look at bureaucracies as a social organism, an organism too much changes or too rapid change is cancer, really. Uh, so we wouldn't want them to change that often, but we do want them to change, and they do change. 
the question is how do they do that? Because again, they have these powerful cultures, they have practices they like in the military, they have machines that they like, they have certain types of machines that they like. So what would get them to change? Um, there's a couple of different theories on this. Um, they, they're somewhat problematic. Um, uh, the definition of innovation is what exactly is an innovation, you know, and when you're testing a, a theory, what is not, what isn't an innovation, so what do we test that against? But there's a couple of different theories in the academic world on this. I think one of the, the, the best is uh, Owen Cote up at the uh, uh, Security Studies Program at MIT has discussed uh, creating a quasi-marketplace between the services where they compete for resources, and you either have an incentive to, to either estimate more realistically or you have an incentive to change. He looks at the um, uh, um, fleet ballistic missiles, Polaris, uh, submarine launch ballistic missiles in the early Cold War. Um, the Navy wanted a place in Eisenhower's new look strategy. Um, they knew that their budget was under threat. The Air Force was getting 50% of the defense budget at the time. And uh, the Navy came up with a way of finding it, of, of working themselves into that strategy and being able to win a larger budget share uh, because of it. So it's, it, it, competition is one way. Uh, that's a theory that needs more testing, but I think it's, it's a compelling one. Um, but the problem is we look at this and we look at defense, and a lot of people look at defense and say, well, we want new technology, we want innovation, which means more money. And that's just really a poor way of looking at it. Um, one, you're more likely to invest in what the organization wants now, or at least you're going to give them the money and the organization is going to invest it in what it wants now. Um, two, we're going through this. I have, a, I, have an essay, I have an essay last month at War on the Rocks discussing this. Uh, we're approaching what is um, uh, being called a modernization bow wave. Uh, you have a lot of um, uh, modernization programs that the next generation of our current weapon systems uh, that investments are supposed to be made in, that development and production are going to be coming up over the next decade, uh, that's very expensive. Like nuclear, is that an example? Nuclear is part of it. It's nuclear and uh, conventional. You have a major, the Air Force is actually the largest driver of this hmm. um, it, with their aircraft modernization, but that includes nuclear with um, uh, the LRSB or the B-21 as it's uh, going to be designated. Um, uh, you also have Navy modernization. You have Shipbuilding budget uh, or shipbuilding plans are expanding. We have the uh, Ohio class uh, submarine replacement, which is part of the nuclear triad. Um, Todd Harrison at the Center for uh, uh, Strategic and International Studies estimates this is going to cost over five years an additional $130 billion on top of what planned spending is over that period. There's a couple of problems with this, let alone the cost. Um, the idea of that being uh, uh, politically feasible is is almost laughable. We have had increases above the Budget Control Act uh, spending limits recently, but they've never approached $130 billion. So what you're probably going to see is if plans were to stay the same as they are now, uh, the can would get kicked down the road. On some, you would see a, a something of an increase, but you would see plans get uh, kicked down the road, causing more problems down the, further down the road when that those bills come due, which is what we've seen has gotten us to this point to begin with. But beyond the cost, there's a bigger problem with this, is technology is changing. Um, DOD recognizes this, uh, the Department of Defense recognizes this, they're not oblivious to it, but what form that 
change takes and how the military responds is an open question, and it's an important question. Um, TX Hammies, uh, from the, uh, the, the, my War on the Rocks essay was largely a review of a paper uh, by TX Hammies. He's a, a scholar at the National Defense University, retired Marine, um, has been working on defense issues for years. Um, wrote a paper for the Cato Institute on the way technologies are changing and the way it will change the generation of military power. And his argument is that uh, technologies like uh, additive manufacturing or 3D printing, um, uh, unmanned vehicles, automation, artificial intelligence, uh, nanoenergetics, which I will admit to not being familiar with until I read this paper, and um, the, the, these technologies are converging to make it very easy to produce military power very cheaply. Um, essentially, you can get either, say, autonomous uh, vehicles with our, uh, either uh, aerial vehicles, ground vehicles, underwater, uh, unmanned underwater vehicles that can go, that can either be with um, uh, artificial intelligence combined with artificial intelligence and can become smart drones, and essentially the way he describes it is an IED that hunts you, be able to hunt, uh, hunt soldiers in the field instead of just being something you would have to leave out there you know, along a likely path and hope that they go along that path. It could actually be intelligent enough to, to follow uh, uh, units in the field. Mm-hmm. Or uh, also 3D printing uh, can cheaply manufacture, uh, possibly cheaply manufacture, swarms of drones uh, that can fly at extremely long ranges because nanoenergetics can be used as a fuel source and an explosive, giving them incredible range and incredible explosive power. You're able to produce them cheaply through 3D printing that you can produce so many of them. If you lost, if you had 5,000 of them, you could lose 2,000 of them, and 1,000 of them could overwhelm uh, an aircraft carrier. It costs $13 billion. I understand that uh, that's part of China's Operating philosophy as well, mm-hmm. the swarm mentality. Yeah, there's and and they 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 have access to some of these technologies. Mm-hmm. Some of the technology is not uh, mature enough, and mm-hmm. in, and in Hammy's uh, analysis, uh, uh, Doctor Hammy's analysis, there is a bit of technological determinism, um, suggesting that just because these technologies exist, they will be uh, adopted. I, I think that's not the best way to look at it, and I think most people would agree. I think even he would uh, agree <laughs> with that. Um, but there are reasons to think that it, it, it that these technologies will be adopted uh, by any number of people who are possibly hostile to the United States. Um, there's a theory uh, by an academic up at the uh, University of Pennsylvania named Michael Horowitz uh, called Adoption Capacity Theory. And it's what does it take for military technology to spread? Um, and basically, it's a, it's a matter of what he calls the financial intensity, which is the cost of the technology itself, as well as potential commercial uh, applications. That way you can produce economies of scale and therefore, again, lowers the barrier to entry, lowers the cost, um, and also the organizational uh, costs of it. And this is, I think, I think the organizational cost is the most important aspect. If the financial, if Hamas is right about the financial intensity, on uh, um, if he's right about the that you can cheaply produce these types of uh, systems using three D printing, then the financial intensity is really negligible. Uh, the question is, how do organizations uh, respond to this? So my question was, in, in this paper, was not so much do potential adversaries have the uh, uh, organizational capital to respond. That's an open question, and it's an important one, and one we don't know the answer to. 
but assuming they do, does the U.S. military have the organizational capacity to, to change in response? Uh, we know we can afford these things. We can afford a lot of things. We're a very rich country, and, and we should be very proud of that. Uh, the question is, would we actually change? Because the $130 billion modernization plan goes right to the heart of a lot of the organizational identity of the services and the things they really like and the things they want and the things that are enable their, their, their doctrines that are in line with their force structures, the things that organizations identify with who they are. And those are difficult things to change. And we've seen this over the years, uh, and this is the story of military innovation, is changing these things, changing the practices, changing... And it's... It, it, I, I, and the other parties involved, as we've discussed, being industry and Congress, also have interests at stake in seeing those interests, those uh, uh, organizational preferences continue because it feeds their interests as well. So... There you have this this uh, this kind of perfect storm of interests aligning against the organization actually changing, and that could lead to a very expensive but very misguided modernization uh, effort we have coming up. Which unfortunately is probably where we'll head. Yeah, <laughs> knowing I, knowing Congress and <laughs> the military industrial complex. So the technology as is coming online that you you refer to. Um, Possibly, if utilized appropriately, and, and you had all the different players buy into it, and you allowed the institutions to change, um, would give us agility you know, yes. like on the battlefield, etc. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering, are there are there now institutions which we could look at, which are agile and could be models for us for the larger institutions within the military? And things like SOCOM mm-hmm. and JSOC or any other institutions, you know, smaller institutions, which are intended yeah. to be quite agile. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they're becoming less agile as they become bigger, yeah. which is a, a problem I think you've, you, you and I have spoken about in the past. But mm-hmm. talk a little bit about some models that we can actually mm-hmm. utilize um, and maybe, you know, point to, as we say, you know, the, the big Army, big Navy, mm-hmm. big Air Force should look at these as models to learn how to become more agile. Yeah, I mean, SOCOM, I think, is a, is a great example. They do, uh, you know, a lot with very little. I mean, whether it's manpower, I mean, a sign of health for... Special forces, special operations forces, is uh, is actually having less manpower. Whereas for the army, it's more manpower. But for for uh, for SOCOM, it's the idea that we are the elite of the elite, and you know it's a sign of health that we only accept this certain number. Um, but they also do a lot with off the shelf technology and uh, you know with with low tech uh, uh, means of of getting the job done. There's two problems with, I think, using them as a model. I think they could serve as one, is, um, uh, but I think there's two problems. One is the functional specialization difference between uh, um, uh, SOCOM and the regular military services. Um, they, they have different practices for mm-hmm. different reasons because they have yeah. different mm-hmm. functions. Um, doesn't mean they can't learn anything from them. Uh, but that right there is going to be a big barrier, and the organizational culture, like I would, like I was saying before, is a big reason for why they do the things they do right now. I mean, they could, SOCOM's been around since 1986. They could have used it as a model anytime before, and they have in some things, especially with the rapid acquisition uh, during uh, the Iraq War. I think, uh, if I remember right, and I could be wrong on that, but uh, I think a lot of that they did use uh, 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 SOCOM's acquisition. Uh, 
at least some insights from it, because I know they're able to procure things a lot quicker uh, than the regular military services are. Um, but it, the organizational essence of the of the Air Force, the Army, uh, Navy, big Army, big Navy, as you said, um, is, is the type of things that they like to buy uh, in a lot of ways, because if they, if they fit with the practices and if they fit with the structures, if they fit with the doctrines, then, you know, just having a model of doing it differently doesn't necessarily make them change. Right, right. Um, Matt, you've, you've referenced a few articles that you've written. Is there a single place people can go find them? Yeah, we, we, we put, they're all posted on the Niskanen Center's uh, website, niskanencenter.org, and on my blog on the uh, uh, Niskanen Center's website, Dollars in Defense. And you're also on Twitter? I am, uh, at MattFay1, and our, we have our department has blog, uh, at Dollars underscore Defense. Great. Matt Fay, thank you. Thank you, Michael.